Lucas on Life. Hello and welcome to Lucas on Life here on Premier Christian Radio. And what a week it's been with so much talk about that interview. And if you're wondering what I'm talking about, well, where have you been? Or perhaps you've decided just to ignore that little sit-down chat between Harry, Meghan and Oprah. Some commentators have suggested that the interview is more consequential than even the conversation that Princess Diana had some years ago when she revealed the so-called third person in the marriage. Certainly, talk and accusation of racism in the royal family is news that is deeply disturbing. The tragedy of George Floyd taught all of us that racist attitudes can be the dirty little secret that lingers in all of our hearts, broken human beings that we are. Also in the news, Adele finalised her divorce from Simon Konecki, custody issues now having been resolved. The news this week has focused a lot on relational breakdown, tension, conflict. So rather than speculating on the headlines and spreading the gossip, I'd like us to talk about forgiveness, the way we talk, and the call that we Christians have to get along well. And then when we disagree, we do so agreeably. Getting along here on Lucas on Life. At the end of a week when there's been so much conversation about relationships and relational breakdown, people talking about each other, people not talking to each other, let's think a little bit about the challenge to us personally in the way that we talk and build or break our relationships. The gunman stared at me, his eyes wide and an insane grin frozen on his face. Two seconds earlier, a bullet from his rifle had whistled across the breakfast table where Kay and I and our young children at the time were sitting. Now the room was clouded with the acrid cordite smoke that stains the air when a large bore weapon is fired inside a house. The bullet slammed into the ceiling above the table, showering us all with plaster. We all immediately burst into tears, overwhelmed with shock and fear, our ears ringing from the deafening explosion. We looked around to see if our children were alive and still had all their limbs. They were unhurt, but the gunman wasn't finished yet. There was another bullet still to come. The day had begun so very happily. We'd been invited to the home of a minister friend, an Englishman who had relocated to Oregon in the USA. He loved every aspect of the backwoods rural culture, big hats, mammoth blueberry pancakes and large guns. He bought himself a 308 rifle, a serious hunting gun that can kill huge animals and make mincemeat of humans. Eager to show off his dubious prize, he chose to demonstrate it while we enjoyed our bacon and eggs. Thinking that the barrel was empty and that the gun was safe, he cocked it and pulled the trigger. The bullet ricocheted off a wood stove and whistled between our heads. The reverend assassin had ignored the most important truth about guns, and that is this. Always assume that they're loaded. Guns aren't as fashionable or available in the UK as they are in America. Personally, I thank God for that. Yet each one of us is in possession of a highly deadly weapon. It's called the tongue. Scripture warns us about its incredible firepower. 
variously described as being like a poisonous dart, a viper's bite, a forest fire, a sharpened razor, and even a sword, and that's not an exhaustive list, the tongue is an efficient little killing machine. With a so-called slip of the tongue, we can annihilate an innocent character with just one shot. Sarcasm can blast a soul's confidence. A well-aimed jibe or so-called clever put-down can take someone out. Marriages are slowly murdered by daily murmurs. And then there's the carnage that gossip creates. Strong churches have been scattered and too many vintage friendships shattered by the machine gun effect of gossip. Careless whisperers place loaded weapons in the hands of any number of people, invite them to just pull the trigger whenever they please, and then pass the smoking gun on. Your turn with gossip. Take another shot. Of course, the tongue can bless too. Words can bring healing, comfort and inspiration. I love you has the sweetest sound. Stirring speeches end wars and launch wonderful revolutions. Martin Luther King announced that he had a dream and oppressed multitudes were galvanised into action. And yet even those who try to use the tongue to help need to be cautious. To my horror, I've discovered that I can be quite a quick-on-the-draw gunfighter myself. I spend a lot of my life using words, both written and spoken. I love to craft a sentence and choose a phrase to communicate. But any gift that I might have can also be used for evil as well as good. In conflict, I can be dangerous. Plucking a crucifying comment out of my armoury, I can use words that sting and maim. Perhaps because the tongue is so dangerous, God placed it in a cage. And yet it still it forms an escape committee. The medieval scholar Estius said of the tongue, Though nature has hedged it in with a double barrier of the lips and teeth, it bursts from its barriers to assail and ruin humanity. So, when we speak up or out, let's think first. And blunt though it sounds, if we're in doubt, let's just shut up. Mark Twain was right. A closed mouth gathers no foot. Watch that tongue. Always assume that it's loaded. Meanwhile, back in Oregon, our pastor gunman friend was not finished with his shooting spree. Shamed and embarrassed by the fact that he very nearly killed his guests, he rushed into the bedroom, ejected the empty shell, and then flustered, reloaded, and fired the gun again, shooting a large hole in the carpet. His enraged wife threw him out of the house, telling him to make the gun safe. We were grateful for her intervention. He's since been allowed back into the house, but we don't have breakfast plans with them anytime soon. We're reflecting on the challenge that we are called to get along, particularly in the week where we've been talking so much about that interview between Harry, Meghan and Oprah. So many millions of words written, so many broadcast words stated on radio and TV. I suppose one question that we have to ask, regardless of our opinion about this, is will there be harmony, restoration, forgiveness among those who have been hurt? Is forgiveness truly going to be offered? In sharing a very dark story with you, I'd like to illustrate and highlight the need for all of us to offer forgiveness.
It was a day when I witnessed some tragic Bible bashing. America had been gripped by the trial of the serial killer Dennis Rader, who tortured and murdered 10 victims over a 30-year period. Monster is an overused word in criminal cases, but this chilling man certainly fits the bill, and he was ultimately sentenced to 145 years in prison, and he won't be eligible for parole for another 40 years. What compounds the tragedy is that he describes himself as a Christian, until recently was president of a Lutheran congregation. In a rambling statement, he quoted from the Bible, read a few lines from a daily devotional book, and suggested that his three-decade killing spree was inspired by demons. He thanked his defence team with the gushing gratitude of an Oscar winner. But not once, not once, did he ever pause to make a serious, considered apology to the relatives of his victims. The best he could manage was, as for remorse, well, that's obvious. But obvious it was not. Sorry would have been a small, a tiny, but welcome start. It often is. The American court system permits the relatives of victims to make a statement at sentence hearings. Fifteen individuals decided to speak up. As this trial was being held in America's Bible Belt, most of them were professing Christians, and in most cases their hatred for Dennis Rader was palpable. Through gritted teeth, they told him that he would burn in hell forever. Some were obviously thrilled at the prospect. The most vitriolic statement came from a man who'd written a Christian book on suffering. He rained down insults on the killer of his mother with glee and pronounced yet another you'll roast forever without possibility of parole sentence. There was something obscene about the relish with which he spoke the words, his face twisted with rage. For a second, it seemed like there was more than one monster in the courtroom. Hell will freeze over before I forgive, he told reporters later. Now, I don't want to judge the relatives of those victims. I can't imagine their agony or begin to fathom the depths of their grief. As I listened to the grisly catalogue of crimes, I found myself shouting at the television. Raider is certainly a loathsome specimen, and I have no idea how I would react if he'd snuffed out the life of my son or daughter. I'm afraid that I might join those baying for his barbecuing. None of us know how we would respond if tested, and we all fervently pray that we will never sit that particular exam. But tragedy begets tragedy, and that event lacked all hope because not one of these professed followers of Christ, perpetrator or victims, could find grace to seek or offer the beginnings of forgiveness. Justice must be done, and Raider must never see the light of day in a community again. But on that occasion, both the condemned and the condemners slopped around in the same sad pool of sin. And the Bible was used by both sides, as it has been so many times throughout history, like a clumsily swung sword, slicing not only those in the actual courtroom, but anyone who watched the proceedings on TV. The Bible is a dangerous weapon in the wrong hands. I couldn't help wondering if the victims' families were committing themselves to ongoing life sentences behind the invisible yet nonetheless iron bars of bitterness. Rage is not a laser-focused missile. It blows up in our own faces. The first person to benefit from forgiving is the forgiver. 
it is not only an act of stunning generosity that extends to others, but a canny strategy for self-preservation. Forgiveness literally is the gift that keeps on giving, most of all to the one who gives it away. So I'm profoundly challenged not only about my own capacity to bestow forgiveness, but also the way in which I use scripture. Truth sometimes hurts, but am I occasionally hurtful in the way I share scripture? Too many Christians have sliced and diced each other in the name of Christ. We can be so intent on applying the serrated edge of scripture that we forget that the truth without love is no truth at all. And hell, whatever that is, will not freeze over. But heaven still stands on tiptoe, waiting in hopeful anticipation for the walking wounded ones who limp on, still blooded, yet refusing to resort to biblical bludgeoning and beginning instead to forgive. So, as we reflect on a family in conflict, let's not just take sides or speculate or proffer our own opinions. Let's do two things. Let's pray for that family, that there will be harmony, reconciliation and peace, that in private they will be able to deal with their issues and in public resolve whatever needs to be resolved in terms of the issues that have been raised. And let's also take the challenge to our own hearts and never allow a rancid pool of bitterness and unforgiveness to settle in us. We've reflected on the way that we speak, the need to forgive. And now let's apply this into our relationships, especially in our churches, because, you know, we're called to get along or to use the biblical language of Ephesians chapter four. We're called to maintain the unity of the spirit. In the last few days, I've had a brand new experience in that I went to an escape room I always thought this would be a ridiculous idea because you actually pay somebody to incarcerate you and then you have to escape. Now, I thought that this would involve me just getting locked up and then standing there for an hour or two screaming, let me out. But actually, it's a lot more complex than that. Finally, we did get out, although I have to tell you that if it had not been for the couple who were doing the experience with us, I probably wouldn't be on premiere this evening. I'd still be in the escape room, having not escaped. But the experience was quite challenging. I thought being locked up for an hour was quite good fun. Being incarcerated for a couple of years, that would be a different story. When Paul the Apostle wrote to the church in Ephesus, he was under house arrest in Rome. It went on for two years. He describes himself as a prisoner for the Lord in Ephesians chapter 4. But then he goes on to say, I beg you, maintain unity, get along. And when he says that, it's a very strong request. It's as if he's saying, look, I'm paying a price for Jesus and for the gospel. Now I am begging you on that basis, get along, be united. You see, unity is a gift. It comes from God, but we all need to maintain it. This is not the responsibility only of the ministers, the pastors, the leaders. This is a task for all of us, and it's a task that we really need to go after. 
When Paul says, maintain unity together, he's using another really strong word. Make every effort. Go all out. The word that he uses there is one that describes a troop of soldiers guarding a city or a treasury. It calls for passion, full effort, ongoingly to maintain our unity. He also talks about living worthy of our calling, living worthy of the gospel. Let's face it, if people hear us Christians talking about the love and grace of Jesus and then see us fighting and feuding over incidentals that don't really matter or disagreeing disagreeably, they're not going to be convinced about the message. Let's be realistic and not idealistic about our churches because if you want to get upset about something, join a church. It's filled with broken human beings, just like me and you. So let's have a realistic approach to being together and not quickly get completely disappointed with all that is going on. Finally, before I wrap this up this evening, let's remember that that church that we call ours, and I think it's quite nice that we talk about my church, but things can go wrong when we start to say, it's my church in terms of control. The church belongs to Jesus. She is his bride. And as we speak the truth in love and we grow up to be like Christ, again, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, then our lifestyles will match our message. Let's turn the challenge around to ourselves about the way that we speak to each other, about our willingness to offer forgiveness and also our responsibility to maintain unity. Not uniformity. We're in a church, not a cult, but the ability with our diversity to just get along. See you next time. Lucas on Life.